Hello and thank you so much for joining us here at Quarto Kids Cast. I'm your host, Mel Shewitt, and today I'm joined by guest Elizabeth Keener, one of the authors of Good Girls Don't Make History. You need to be honest with yourself and honest about your mistakes in order to learn from them and advance uh, as a society and as a culture. Good Girls Don't Make History is an important graphic novel that amplifies the voices of female legends from 1840 to the present day. It's a powerful examination of just a few of the key figures in the ongoing fight for women's equality, and the book's twists and turns take readers through time by illuminating parallels between the epic battles for liberty in the past and similar struggles for justice today. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Elizabeth Keener, author of Good Girls Don't Make History. Hello, I'm Elizabeth Keener, and I'm the author of Good Girls Don't Make History. I'm so excited to talk to you about this book, Elizabeth, for so many reasons. I'm a big graphic novel fan, um, and I think this book is incredibly special. We should start at the beginning, though. Where did Good Girls Don't Make History come from? And can you tell us a little bit about the other contributors to the book? Yeah, so Good Girls Don't Make History was inspired by the anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, which was passed on August 26, 1920. So actually, last summer in the middle of COVID, the 100-year anniversary happened, and no one really got to celebrate it to the full extent because of the pandemic. So it's uh, fortunate for us now that this book is coming out this year to ride the wave of that momentum to really celebrate the brave and charismatic leaders that forged a path to the ballot box for women in America. We wanted to commemorate their stories, their lives, legacy, and spotlight some of the unsung heroes that really don't get a lot of airtime in most textbooks in America. And that was a big inspiration for writing the book, on top of which um, is also making people very cognizant of voting rights in general, even as it pertains today. Just two weeks ago, the US Supreme Court gave states more leeway in restricting voting. And, and that to me is a challenge that we are still confronted with today and need to make people aware of from a civic standpoint. So the reason why we wanted to create the book and why we chose a graphic novel as a form factor was to make it very approachable and very democratic as far as its appeal to younger audiences, and also to take this history that has typically been rendered in black and white photos and, and documentaries that you know may in some cases make people fall asleep rather than making them feel excited and riveted about this subject and really present it in a colorful and dynamic way to get people more engaged in, in this very important subject. As for my collaborators on the project, my husband Keith Olwell is a co-creator and we have done many projects in the past. We actually met in film school, it seems like eons ago. So we have been collaborating on creative projects uh, since our early twenties. And my co-author Cara Coyle is another person that I met um, throughout the journey of pulling the book together her mother was actually uh, in politics for 20 years as a woman, obviously, and she was really inspired by her mother's journey as well as her own 
work that she's done within the advertising and marketing industry to elevate uh, women leaders in, in that field. And then Michaela Dawn, who is the illustrator, is based up in Canada. And after feeling like I combed the universe trying to find the right illustrator who had the right style for this book, I stumbled upon Michaela's website and really fell in love um, with her imagery, um, which was very artistic and, and a, a lot of work that was some, in some cases, spiritual, in some cases, uh, a lot of imagery that is representative of Native American, African, and Aboriginal um, people. So it was a, a good and an inclusive way to represent all of the different people that we were portraying in the story. Can you tell us a little bit about the research process for the book and how you guys divvied up the work? And I would love to hear about some of the challenges that you encountered, because I imagine a lot of the stories are untold. So how did you get all of the information in order to create a sort of complete look at this movement? So the research process was really extensive, and I feel like we literally spent two, if not three years, researching the book. And my sister-in-law, Victoria Olwell, is a professor at University of Virginia, and she introduced us to an encyclopedia of women's suffrage history in America that was a volume that she shared, and we ended up purchasing our own copy of it. But it, you know, is literally like a doorstop. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a significant book. And we, we started with that as far as understanding the history and then spent a lot of time trying to find rare copies of books uh, as far as autobiographies or biographies that were written about various suffragists and, you know, had to go and try to find things through interlibrary loan and the like. Um, I live near Sarah Lawrence College, so there was something that we had to track down through their library system and did uh, a lot of sort of sleuthing um, the library circuit, trying to find these rare books because in many cases, you know, this is not a commonly told history. So the, the research was extensive and I spent a lot of time actually while I was traveling, um, the, the period of time that I was researching the book, I was traveling internationally quite extensively for work. And when I was on these long plane rides to places such as Australia or Asia, I would work on, you know, the research and, and the writing and sort of the blocking and tackling of the book. And that ended up making very good use of my of my travel time and gave me a place to to really focus. And that was where most of the research was done. I think, you know, some of the biggest challenges were there was, there are so many incredible stories that we were not able to include in the book um, just to not make it another uh, intense and, and overwhelming volume of content that would maybe be perceived as daunting for people to look at. We wanted to again, uh, make the book very accessible and approachable. So there were a lot of stories that we needed to make the tough decision to edit out. And it was also difficult for us to figure out initially from whose point of view do we tell the story from? 
and you know exactly how we wanted to do the flashbacks and flash forwards because there's a parallel narrative between this historical recounting of situations you know starting with Seneca Falls up until um, you know present day history practically and, and we go backwards and forwards in time so uh, figuring out how to navigate that from a narrative standpoint was pretty complex. And then I would say the other complexity was finding the right illustrator and then, you know, getting the style that we ultimately landed on for the, the look of the book, um, which, which I'm, you know, quite proud of and, and very, very pleased by. Um, but that process took a long time. And I think the, the last complexity was completing this book in the midst of the pandemic where it seemed like the world was turned upside down and yeah. we didn't know if there was any chance of us to even find a publisher under these circumstances. So um, towards the tail end of things, we, we felt a, a certain amount of duress, like, is this ever going to see the light of day? Then fortunately it did. And we're in the place now that we're launching the book and we're so incredibly excited. Um, but it's, it's been a, an interesting journey in and of itself, just to see uh, you know, what happened over the course of three or four years as we researched and wrote and, and illustrated the book. Yeah, what would you say surprised you the most in your research? Well, I think it's been, uh, it was pointed out very much in, in the mainstream media last year, how uninclusive the history of uh, women's suffrage was. Um, so that was something that we tried to make sure we were very conscientious of, including people of color, definitely making note that a lot of the very early suffragists in the United States, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony were very inspired by Native American women. And that's, you know, they took a page from their playbook as they started thinking about how to organize and, and you know, what they were fighting for. And, and a lot of this isn't told or isn't shared. And it's, um, the, the retelling, and, and I say all the time, and when I introduce the book, that history has rarely been shared from a woman's point of view. I think that history has sometimes been um, very uninclusive. So we did our best to be inclusive, and, and we would like to, in the future, create a book that is focused on African-American history and, and their you know, quest, which you know, arguably they're still fighting for, to have the, the right liberties and freedoms in America. And also Native American and Asian American who you know, couldn't vote until much later. So there's so much depth um, to this topic. Once you open it up, it is like a Pandora's box of um, you know, issues, quite frankly, but there are important things for us to confront. And, and I think you know, the biggest challenge is when you stare in the face of you know, what we sometimes experience in very like rah-rah American patriotism, we sometimes don't take a step back to take a critical look or understand, you know, quite frankly, what we did wrong and the mistakes that we made. And, and you need to be honest with yourself and honest about your mistakes in order to learn from them and advance uh, as a society and as a culture. So I think hopefully this will open some people's eyes to the wrongs that were done and 
what we need to still do in our society today, both in the public sector and the private sector and in family lives to create more equality. And, and that's something that is a continued aspiration for me, but you know, sometimes it is good to take a lesson uh, from history in order to draw some inspiration for how we need to continue to galvanize this effort and, and create you know, sort of a new paradigm for how we need to persevere and inspire the next generation um, to, to continue making sure that we have a balanced and fair society. Looking for free downloadables to add to your lesson plans? Quarto Kids offers a wealth of teacher guides, activity kits, and educational materials to supplement everything kids are learning, no matter the age range, subject matter, or setting. Check out our downloadable resource at quartonos.com forward slash r forward slash educator resources. That's Q-U-A-R-T-O-K-N-O-W-S dot com forward slash r forward slash educator resources. Absolutely. Just vigorously nodding over here. So to take that one step further, what are some steps that you would suggest to parents, educators, or the readers themselves? In this case, readers are a little bit older for this book. What are some steps they can take to internalize and then spread the message of your book? Well, I think, you know, one message that I would say off the bat is that this book is arguably more important for men and boys to read than it is for women to read. And I have both a son and a daughter. And I remember last year going for a walk with my son during the pandemic, and we passed a street that was closed near our house that was under construction. And there was a sign on the end of the road that said men at work. And my son stopped me and he said, mom, why does that sign say men at work? I know how I like, I see how hard you work all day. And like, he was pointing out that he thought that sign was sexist. And he now sees things in society that trigger him as like, wait a minute, that isn't right. That's amazing. I don't need to bring them up. He's seeing them himself and, and he's seeing, you know, both my husband and I have a, a very democratic um, split of you know, domestic duties and, and we're both you know, working parents as well. Um, and, and that paradigm is very normal to him. And when he sees something contrary to that, like it catches his attention and he points it out. So the, the more, and this is the importance of making the story resonate with you know, kids and young adults is that you know, what you see and what you hear over and over again, you know, becomes normal to you or becomes your reality or your expectation of, of this is how things are done. So I think it's important and I'm a, a huge um, believer in, you know, men being evangelists for women and women's rights. And, you know, one of the most touching stories that I remember in doing research, which, you know, I don't even feel we had the opportunity to draw out enough was the relationship between Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony. And Frederick Douglass was such a ferocious crusader for women's rights. And we, we need more people like this today. We need more people like former President Obama, who is a self-declared feminist. 
So to me, appealing to men who are advocates of women or advocates in general for a more, you know, balanced democratic society and sharing of, of domestic labor, that's what we really need um, to, to create the sustainable, you know, sort of gender balanced future that I hope to see, um, not just in America, but around the world. So that that's something that I feel like is, you know, point number one, um, this, this story needs to be shared um, with, with men, with boys and, and make sure that they are allies in this. I think the second point is just igniting people's civic responsibility and conviction. And that could take the form of, you know, getting involved in local elections and, you know, voting in every election, no matter how large or small and, and taking responsibility um, for your neighborhood and, and getting engaged and, and not sitting by like a bystander when you see something that you think could be done better or that's troubling you, um, you know, try to do something about it. So I feel like there's a, a lot of opportunity as far as looking at all levels of engagement in, in civic leadership that, it, you know, particularly kids can start to do at a young age. Like, for, you know, for me, it may not be a huge surprise that I was, you know, very involved in, in student council when I was uh, a child and in, in public school myself. And I was always very engaged um, when it came to voting and, and to, you know, representation and the like. But, you know, when, when you see today the statistics around voter turnout, particularly with younger demographics, it's a little bit troubling. So I think that I, I do just want to raise the level of engagement and direct action that we see um, when it comes to, you know, not just voting, but civic engagement and civic responsibility. So I think that is the, the second point. And I think, you know, the, my, my last point is, you know, both with this topic of understanding, you know, women's history in America, as well as others, it is just important to help people appreciate lessons that they can learn and take from history. So some people have a, a view of the world that is you know, very wrapped around their, their lifespan when there's so much that we can learn from generations past that we don't make the same mistake we did you know, a generation or two ago um, just because we haven't sufficiently absorbed and processed what happened. So I think, you know, we don't want to repeat the past, you know, particularly if it was, uh, you know, something that was done, done wrong. And I think rather than, you know, falling into a situation where history repeats itself in a negative way, um, let's learn from our mistakes and be very conscientious and, and present and intentional about designing the future that you know we ourselves and and for you know children or future generations want to live in. Wow, I think that is a good spot for us to wrap up. But I do have one final question for you, and I'm particularly interested, just given everything you said. I feel like I can predict your answer, but I want to ask you one final question. And that is what makes you love a book? What pulls you in and keeps you coming back to your favorite books over and over again? 
Well, that's a great question. So I have to admit, I double majored in literature. So I have loved books for a long time. Obviously, before college, I grew up in a super small town in the middle of Pennsylvania. And books were the way that I could transcend myself to another place, to a faraway land, to another di dimension. Um, and, and they were all, I, I was an avid reader since as early as I can remember. And, and I still am um, as much as I have time to between <laughs> balancing, you know, family and work and, and all of the other obligations. Um, but books continue for me to be, uh, you know, totally transformative and transformational and inspiring. And I love reading. I love listening to authors give readings. I, I love just engaging and, and sharing stories in general. I think it is uh, so essential to the human experience and, and always will be, quite frankly. Well, now I have to ask, how do you double major in something? How does well, yeah, it's uh, so I when I was in college, I double majored in visual media and literature, and I probably could have graduated a semester earlier had I not double majored. But wow. uh, I, I, I decided to major in film um, and a, a lot of that, which I enjoyed a lot, was very hands on, you know, learning to shoot film and learning to edit and the like. And I sort of missed the cerebral part of my brain being activated. So I started uh, taking some literature courses and decided to double major so I could still tap into the rigor of reading and, and writing papers, um, you know, from, from a literature standpoint, uh, which I'm really happy I did. It's, it's something that I, I think is, you know, I talk about all the time in my job today um, because I get complimented a lot on my writing uh, for work that you know I've I've been <laughs> writing in, in some form or another my entire life and and just having that um, as a very practiced and honed skill will will help you in you know practically any field or industry you may enter. Um, communications and, and good writing skills are are so essential. So you kind of can't go wrong. You're here. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Elizabeth, for stopping by and sharing this incredibly special book with me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for listening to our chat with Elizabeth Keener. Good Girls Don't Make History will be available online and in bookstores and libraries worldwide this August, so make sure to pre-order your copy today. We'd love to see you subscribe to Quarto Kids Cast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can find all available episodes at anchor.fm slash Cast. And hey, if you're enjoying Quarto Kids Cast, we'd be so grateful if you left a review so others can hear about it too. Special thanks to Scott Holmes for our theme music, Steve Roth for his promotional vocal stylings, Elizabeth Keener for stopping by to talk to us, and of course you, the listener, for tuning in. Until next time.